Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Rowie. This is a special episode to cover the results of yesterday's by-elections across Australia, and I'm joined by William Bow from Poll Bludger. Hello, William. Hello, Ben. So, uh, William's joining me remotely from Perth, and where it's uh, currently Sunday afternoon, and it's been about 24 hours since the polls closed, and we're just going through all of the different stuff that uh, happened in last night's results. So five seats went to by-elections yesterday. Four of those were held by Labor and the fifth held by the Centre Alliance. The Liberal Party contested three of these by-elections. Despite the polls suggesting close races in some of these seats, all five seats were won by the incumbent party. Labor actually gained a swing to them in Longwind, despite the polls, and the Centre Alliance gained a swing in Mayo, which the polls predicted reasonably well. William, what surprised you most about the results? The only surprise was Longman. Uh, everything else went completely according to script. The surprise in Longman was that there was a 10% decrease in the Liberal National Party vote. None of the polls saw this coming and none of the narratives saw this coming. This was supposed to be this crucial test for Bill Shorten. And, you know, if there had been a more realistic appraisal of how the Longman by-election was going to go ahead of time, the questions would have been pointed at least as much in the other direction. But, you know, for the past few months, Malcolm Turnbull has been surging in the polls, at least in terms of his personal approval. The coalition uh, voting intention hasn't been changing much, but it's just seemed that the atmosphere has been favourable to Malcolm Turnbull over the course of the last few months. And uh, now we've got a pretty solid reason to doubt that all of a sudden. Yeah, and it also makes me wonder, like, maybe Malcolm Turnbull's personal popularity has increased, but uh, whether that really has much to do with how the government is going. Like, um, I think there's been a lot of chatter about Shorten and Turnbull's leadership, but it seems to me like they're, they're not very relevant to what is going on. You know, Shorten's not a very popular leader. Turnbull's about as appealing as a liberal leader that is available at the moment for the party. And yet we're, we're stuck in this situation where the polls haven't moved very much and Labor has this small but pretty stable lead. And it kind of, it sort of makes me think a little bit, well, maybe there's like, it's very easy to talk about um, changing a leader, but actually that's not really what's going on. My take about Turnbull's improving approval rating had been that while it doesn't seem to be translating yet into voting intention, when we get the glare of a presidential election campaign with Malcolm Turnbull constantly going head to head against Bill Shorten, when that happens, the dynamic is presumably going to be more favourable for him if he goes into that by-election with a very strong into that general election campaign with you know a very strong lead over Bill Shorten in terms of the way that he is perceived. So a lot of the time, people will dismiss this sort of uh, leadership rating polls as the beauty contest and trivial and irrelevant, and the only thing that matters in voting intention. My sense has always been that it's a sort of guide to how things are going to be when people are switched on. And there has been a historic tendency for personal approval ratings in particular to be a leading indicator of what's going to happen in polls in a few months' time. So that would be my take, but now we've got an actual by-election campaign at least, and it doesn't seem that the apparently improving uh, approval rating of Malcolm Turnbull has made any difference. Now, maybe this is specific to a by-election, 
And uh, I'm not letting go of that hypothesis yet. When you get a general election campaign, there's going to be leaders, debates, there's going to be there's going to be leaders everything. Election campaigns are massively leader oriented and the you know crucial swinging voters are, are leadership oriented. They largely view it as a referendum on who the Prime Minister is going to be. So I still think that that advantage that Malcolm Turnbull is seen as a more credible leader than Bill Shorten among the eyes of the public at large may yet be an asset to him come a general election campaign. However, I've been given reason to doubt that by the fact that he's really failed very badly to turn that into votes given the opportunity of the Longman by-election. The other thing I find fascinating about these by-elections is, you know, people have tried to refer to the precedent of previous by-elections. You know, governments don't gain seats in by-elections of oppositions and, uh, you know, those kind of things. But everything about these by-elections is different to previous by-elections. The fact that there's five at once, I feel like, give, gave it a bit of a vibe of a a mini general election more than a by-election, that there was some sense of it having greater significance than just one seat. Um, the fact that we had incumbents running again, again, gave it a bit of a vibe of a general election uh, and a bunch of those kind of factors that I think I think possibly make it more valuable as a test than the typical by-election, whereas I think generally most by-elections don't really tell you much about the general election. Uh, but I think that is, it could, there's, it's just such an unusual set of circumstances and we don't like we don't really know yet and i think possibly we'll have to wait until after the federal election to really fully assess what impact these had yeah, I do think that's true. And in particular, I think that's a sort of set of explanations for why you wouldn't necessarily expect these by-elections to give the opposition the swing that it usually gets. Uh, you know, the, 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 the focus in particular in recent weeks has been on, you know, Bill Shorten, you know, has he, has he got what it takes to make it to the election? And these by-elections are a kind of test of that. That's an unusual circumstance for a by-election. Every by-election is very different. And if you try and look at the historic record of by-election data to extract from that some iron rule of what swing you're going to get under certain circumstances, it just never works. Every by-election says a lot about the popularity of the outgoing member normally, that that's, and this is a very unusual factor about this election. Uh, four of these five by-elections, we have had the incumbent defending the seat. That's the opposite of what a by-election is normally about. And indeed, these are these are first-term incumbents, right? So you would expect, if anything, their personal vote to be more of a positive, whereas normally you'd be dealing with the absence of a personal vote. Yes, indeed. You know, we've got uh, a the fact that, you know, we're not having... Uh, the loss of a sitting member's personal vote, which is normally what happens at a by-election, normally what a by-election is. Not only that, we've got at least a measure of sophomore surge effect. On the other hand, that's maybe cancelled out by the fact that people are irritated by the Section 44 issue and the fact that these MPs have fallen foul of it and didn't you know, do their paperwork. You've heard anecdotally a lot of people complaining about how hopeless politicians are in relation to Section 44. And, you know, we, get, we cop hell if we 
don't fill out a government form correctly. Why couldn't these people do it? Uh, so, you know, you can throw that in as a factor. That's mostly been confounded by these by-elections, though, because neither today nor in the previous Section 44 by-elections uh, by has that appeared to do the, the incumbents any harm. Well, by my count, we have nine cases of a lower house MP being turfed out due to Section 44, seven in the last year, as well as uh, Jackie Kelly in, and uh, Phil Cleary in the 90s. And eight of those nine had a by-election and Phil Cleary just faced the next general election. And apart from David Feeney retiring, uh, all of the others were re-elected. So I still think it's entirely plausible that someone could be um, hurt by the voters judging them harshly because of Section 44 sloppiness. But the lesson, and maybe in the future, voters might judge them more harshly now that the issue has been so fully aired. But I think the lesson we've got is that when the push comes to shove, most voters don't seem to care. I don't know. There's so many other factors, but we're yet to see a single case where it seems clear that someone's been punished for it. Well, that's the thing. Maybe they are being punished for it, but it's being cancelled out by some other factor that's going on. You know, without without sort of detailed survey data or what's going on in these elections, we can only speculate. But you would have to say it's a pretty impressive record of voters appearing not to care all that much about it. Maybe voters are hostile to politicians in, in aggregate, but they're a little bit more personally sympathetic towards their local member and a little bit more aware of what their personal circumstances are. So uh, I think there may be an element of that going on. But, you know, you'd have to say that the striking thing is that Section 44 has not uh, alienated voters from their local members. Well, I was on a show this morning on BuzzFeed with Sam Dastiari and his theory was all politicians are so hated anyway that it's kind of a baseline that... Um, that there's not that much further for them to fall. That's interesting in Longman especially, where every every consequential candidate had a big millstone hanging around their neck. You know, Susan Lamb had Section 44. Um, Trevor, I've forgotten his name, Ruthenberg, is it? Um, had his military medal issue. And uh, Matthew Stephen, the, the One Nation candidate, had... Uh, well, you name it, whether or not One Nation uh, members were aware of the fact that, you know, he had lots of question marks around his sort of capacity to pay his debts and wages from his tiling business. I think it's sort of uh, proverbial that One Nation members aren't, you know, hugely politically literate and may be aware of these sorts of things. But, you know, you had three big candidates under the microscope. All of them had some theoretical problem why there might be a backlash against them personally, uh, I think probably it, it, there may have been an element of that with Trevor Rothenberg, but clearly uh, the, 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 the dog didn't bite with Susan Lamb and uh, voters, what potential One Nation voters don't seem to be bothered one way or another about problems with their candidates or even with Pauline Hanson herself, who's had you know bad publicity in the last week. So on that point, why don't we um, move into discussing each of the individual seats? The suggestion earlier was that we discuss them in clockwise order and starting with Longman, which is also conveniently probably the order of most interest. So Longman, uh, at the moment, there's a swing of just over 4% to Labor, which is turning a margin of about 0.8% into a margin of roughly 5%, at least on the current figures, uh, which um, if you translate that into the seats in Queensland that are in play, which would be simplistic, but it's interesting, uh, that would there are eight 
LNP seats in Queensland held on margins of less than 4.2%. So it does suggest potential for uh, the LNP to suffer quite a hammering in Queensland, and it would be particularly concerning for the neighbouring MPs in the seats of Petrie and Dixon, which kind of share a council area with, with Longman, which are held by Peter Dutton and Luke Howarth. Uh, so, uh, what's your what's your take on the on the Longman count particularly? Well, the four percent swing is the absolute bang on in the middle average by election swing against the government. So, I guess you could say that this portends that the next election is going to be a perfectly average result in swing terms. So, uh, I, I I would hesitate to apply the four percent benchmark, even though it's pretty well in line with what polling from Queensland is saying. So uh, the point that I think that I would make is that if the the Liberals were feeling optimistic going into these by-elections, they might have hoped that what was coming through in Longman, which seemed to be until election day itself, that the LNP were going to do a lot better than they actually did, that this was going to indicate that the strong polling for Labor in Queensland is soft. And now that we've had a by-election at which Labor haven't done very well, we've got a real indication of what's going on in Queensland, which is that those that those strongish poll ratings Labor are getting in uh in Queensland are going to dissolve on contact with it with an election campaign of any kind. And once they've got over that hurdle, they're, they're saying, right, we're not afraid of Queensland anymore. We think we're coming back. Then it becomes possible for them to, you know, stitch together a credible scenario where they might actually win an election. They do seem to be improving in Western Australia, the Liberals, which had been their other trouble spot. So given their poll improvement in Western Australia and the potential for a by-election to say that we should be misled by polls in Queensland, it was possible for the Liberals to generate an optimistic picture. The the result in Longman, I think, gives them a reality check on that score. They do have problems in Queensland. They aren't just going to go away because the state Labor government might not be all that popular. And, uh, you know, the, the, the... uh, there have been sort of economic issues in Queensland over the course of the last five or six years or so, and that these things are real headaches for the for the for the Liberals, and uh, they aren't necessarily going to go away just by banging the drum of the sorts of security issues that the Liberals like to have. You know, there there has been a. No, the Victorian election, obviously the strategy there is to sort of talk up African gangs and make law and order a big issue. And uh, by the same token, the, you know, the sort of the boat people issues, all of these sorts of things that, you know, Peter Dutton spearheads, I think there had been a notion within the coalition that these things are going to paper over the economic bread and butter issues that are playing in Labor's favour in Queensland. Uh, Longman is an issue that is an indication, I think, that no, bread and butter economic issues are going badly for, for the Liberals. There is a perception that they're too interested in the big end of town. They're not interested in us people out here in the glamour in the unglamorous suburbs out in the fringe of Brisbane. And we're not going to be mollified by law and order and boat people talk. I I, I think that that's the the fear and the risk for for the Liberals out of this. They had cause to be a little bit more optimistic uh, for a while there. And I think, you know, this really big slump in the LNP vote, notwithstanding that most of it's gone to One Nation, 
Uh, some of it did go to Labor. Labor's primary vote was up, and that wasn't a foregone conclusion. And I think Labor have run... I'm not uh, au fait with the grassroots in Longman, but I suspect they've run a very good ground-level campaign, uh, uh, mobilising their union worker base, talking about penalty rates, and that you know this has gone very well for them. And, you know, it's back to the drawing board for the Turnbull government, particularly if they were in any way entertaining the possibility of an election this year. No, they're going to have to work out a new strategy over the next year. Well, it does seem likely that the possibility of an election is off the table now, at least for this year. Yes, I don't think there's any doubt about that at all. And not only that, the reason it's off the table is that they're going to have to rethink a few things. And the other thing with Longman was One Nation, they polled respectably 16%, but that compares to uh, over 20% in the, in the uh, equivalent state seats uh, at the Queensland state election. So it's um, like it's, it's a respectable vote, uh, but looking at the map of where that vote came, particularly the swing, it does appear that they picked up a lot of those votes from the LNP and they partly went back to the LNP as preferences and the share of the minor party preference flow to the LNP has increased significantly. So it does appear that probably One Nation's preferences did help the LNP, but a lot of those votes probably came from the LNP in the first place. So it's sort of a business as usual, not a lot to report really on One Nation. I think One Nation can be a little bit happy that their vote has increased as much as it has. Uh, I, I, you know, the the, the state election uh, comparison obviously, you know, takes a little bit of the shine off for them. But given uh, the, the problems that their candidate had, but, you know, then again, problems with their candidates is absolutely par for the course for One Nation and there's no reason to think it's going to be any different in future. The fact that this was a by-election though meant that there was a, a lot of coverage for the problems their candidates were happening. At a general election campaign that can all get lost in the mix. So I, I think that probably did damage them a little bit. But uh, I, it seemed to me that One Nation ran a slicker and more professional-looking campaign, a campaign that looked more like a major party campaign. Their literature the, the, it w- was, uh, you know, full of sort of catchy-looking images and slogans in a way that they certainly wasn't the case in 2016 when they were more of a ramshackle operation again. I don't know about the specifics of whether or not it's just that, you know, the, the, the people surrounding Pauline Hanson now, you know, now that she's in Parliament, she's got a more sort of professional group of people around her. But it struck me that their campaigning message was a lot more on point this time than it was either at the state election, never mind the federal election in 2016. And, that you know, if they can do that, if they can conduct a campaign that looks and feels more like the work of a professional outfit, then that will get the attention and persuade a lot of these low-interest voters and that there's a little bit of juice for them there. Certainly not enough for them ever to be competitive in lower house seats. You know, I think that dream has gone for them. But by the same token, you know, if they're polling 16 17% in, in Longman, then clearly they have a durable level of support in Queensland that's not just going to vanish as a result of all the crises that the party, you know, repeatedly goes through. Well, yeah, I was going to say it suggests uh, that they have a good chance of winning back that Senate seat in uh, 2019. Why don't we move on to Braddon quickly? Uh, so... 
uh, Braddon, largely it looks like on the 2PP, there has been very little swing. At the moment, there's a slight swing to Labor, but that could easily go away on the postal votes and the other late counting. Um, so largely that seems to have evened out, um, which is, it was a, like the polls, the polls weren't off by very much in the end in, in Braddon. They, they probably had a slight bias towards the Liberals. Uh, but there were some polls that predicted a Labor win, which is what happened. Probably the most interesting thing is this independent who polled about 11%, Craig Garland, and his vote particularly was high in the rural parts of Braddon after polling um, a much lower vote at a state election in March. The polls, for what they are worth, did seem to show a slight improving trend for Labor in both Longman and Braddon. And I think the final news poll in Braddon was pretty much spot on. Uh, It was a status quo result, except that Craig Garland uh, picked up a couple of percent from Labor, Liberal and the Greens. Uh, no doubt he got a, a lot of the vote that went to the Recreational Fishers Party, who did uh, pretty solidly in 2016 as well. So uh, it, it's uh, in terms of the two-party swing, there isn't one. And historically speaking, you'd say that's not a great result for an opposition party, and particularly in a state like Braddon, which really is a battler's electorate. It's a very low-income electorate. It's a very low-education electorate. And it is one where Labor's sort of message, you know, class war, as the News Limited papers love to say, that uh, message that Labor, you know, the, the, the sort of redistributive economic message that, you know, the, 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 this is a government that really is looking after higher-income earners. They've got a lot of ammunition to work with there. You'd think that would hit pretty hard in Braddon. On the other hand, Braddon is an electorate that has always moved with its own rhythms, or rather Tasmania is a state that's always moved with its own rhythms. And uh, it may be, you know, it's always difficult to sort of compare this election with the last election because you need to consider what factors might have been one-offs last time around. Uh, I, I think in 2016... I don't think the Liberals ran a good campaign in 2016 full stop. They made a basic strategic error in making their campaign about the presidentialism of Malcolm Turnbull and these sorts of themes of innovation. All of this went down like a lead balloon in the regional and urban French seats. And Braddon really characterises that. So I, I think the, the Liberals are coming off a pretty miserable performance in 2016 in this seat where they could have done better if they'd run a campaign that had been better oriented toward that sort of electorate. It is interesting that the Liberal campaign, you know, Erica Betts came out and criticised the Independent and things like that that seemed, seemed to kind of throw them off their message a little bit and it didn't seem very clear uh, what they were trying to um, accomplish with that kind of stuff and it probably probably didn't help them in the end. Yeah, I do think that. I think they should have left well alone with Craig Garland and this isn't the first time I've had cause to wonder about Erica Betts' political instincts. Uh, in the, the, well, I just referred to how badly the Liberals did in Tasmania in 2016 and sort of attributed it all to the leadership and the central campaign messaging. But uh, the, the fact that the Liberal Party presented an image of being a kind of button-down boys club of arch-conservatives 
that obviously didn't stand the Liberals in good stead last time around. And I really doubt that Hammer and Craig Garland did him that much harm and probably raised his profile and helped him poach a few more votes. Do you think uh, he has a shot at a seat at the state election, maybe? I mean, that kind of vote would, would be a plausible vote. I mean, a lot will be different, but... Uh, it could... Oh, yeah, 11%, you know, really would put... I, I imagine that would win him a seat under Hare Clark, but uh, I he would have more competition, I guess, at a state election, and a state election is a long way away. I think that's his big problem. If if this was feeding into a state election in a couple of months' time, this could be a tremendous launching pad for him. Uh, he's got th- over three years to sort of make people not forget him. So uh, I, I think that's that that's a challenge that he faces. But, you know, he does seem to have... I think part of it, though, was, uh, you know, mainland media wanting to find a story out of Braddon and one wasn't really presenting itself. You know, you, you didn't have the One Nation challenge like you had in Queensland. So uh, I think Craig Garland got quite a lot of press for that sort of reason. You know, for a, a candidate who was sort of expected to not quite crack 10%. Uh, you know, it, it, it sort of the the determination to find something there from the media lifted his profile there, and Erica Betts lifted his profile there. So, uh, you know, that's an interesting question of if he has enough traction to get a state seat. I'd say not necessarily. Um, for that reason, uh, you know, it would be very hard for him to, to, to maintain that level of, of profile three years. You know, the, the Braddon by-election will be ancient history by the time of the Tasmanian election. But, you know, he has shown that, you know, he's there's an appetite in, in Braddon. And, uh, you know, I, I think Jackie Lambie demonstrates this. You know, for that, that that corner of Tasmania, there clearly is a feeling that the Labor Party is too sort of metropolitan, that the Liberal Party does not represent their economic interests. So uh, clearly there's the potential for some sort of third party force to come through there. Tasmania, has, one nation had never been well organised in Tasmania. So, you know, you, you do have that, that, that potential for, you know, uh, anti-politician mavericks to come through. And, you know, we've seen an element of that here. The one other thing I wonder about is, do you think Braddon is now off the table for the general election? Or do you think we could see, uh, I would think probably it's a seat that gets a lot less attention at the general election than it might have otherwise, because so much of this has been fought out. But theoretically, it could still be a seat that flips. Oh, it could be. Um, I it, Well, it, it, it has flipped at four of the last five elections. It's usually taken, which it's taken pretty something pretty solid to do it each time, though. You know, it, it took, you know, the, the, the forests issue in 2004 was a big, big deal at the end of that election campaign. And that clearly shook Braddon loose when uh, John Howard picked it up. Then it took big national swings to get them over the line in 2016. 2007 and 2013. I think in 2016 we saw what Braddon naturally is, though, which is a which is a labour landing seat. And uh, yeah, I, I would be surprised if it flipped. I think that uh, you know, I don't think that this government's doing a great job of pitching itself at low income electorates. And, uh, you know, for, for reasons that, you know, are, are fairly obvious, their, their economic policies and their big showpiece legislation is all about, you know, uh, tax cuts at the upper end, company tax cuts, penalty rate cuts. 
that's a sort of suite of issues which is going to make it really difficult for the Liberal Party to win Breton. And uh, I think we've seen that at both the general election and to a lesser extent the by-election. So uh, I think we've seen a status quo result in the by-election and probably we'll see one at the next election as well. Uh, unless Labor commits some sort of tactical blunder like they did in 2004 where they allowed themselves to get wedged on you know, local forestry jobs. You know th 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 that potential is always there, but uh, I think that like that's a mistake. Labor's unlikely to repeat in Tasmania at federal level. So uh, Mayo, we we saw a pretty conclusive result there, uh, a good result for the Centre Alliance for Rebecca Sharkey. I guess the one question I really wonder about is, and a lot of this is speculation, but. Um, Sharkey probably is benefiting from the kind of effect that an independent gets. And I'm, I'm not sure we can really extrapolate this to anyone else in the Centre Alliance right now. We don't really know anything about how they'll do without Nick Xenophon. Yeah, I think that's pretty safe to say. If you look at the, the polling trends for South Australia on my budget track thing on my website, you will see that the Nick Xenophon team or the Centre Alliance or whatever you want to call it has been in free fall uh, since their disastrous state election. So uh, that has uh, been feeding into what pollsters, uh, what, what what respondents are telling pollsters, and uh, from that, it's, it is indeed very tempting to conclude what you say that this is a classic example of an independent getting entrenched, and uh, you know the fact that she's got Nick Xenophon's branding has done her neither good nor harm. This was a vote for her personally. This was something I think that's, that surprised us who don't have our nose to the grindstone in Mayo. Uh, how well regarded Rebecca Sharkey is locally. Uh, when the by-election campaign began, the, the, the perception was that, 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 that you know Nick Xenophon's had a disastrous state election and uh, Rebecca Sharkey's got the Section 44 issue. And yeah, she was in trouble. You know, when the bookmarker, bookmakers opened their odds, Georgina Downer was the favourite. Seems a long time ago now, but this was the case. This seemed to be the perception that this this is a seat. You know, the 2016 was a one-off result, and now Mayo is going to go home to its natural home in the Liberal Party. This, uh, among other things, this underestimated how uh, how what high name recognition Rebecca Sharkey has locally, how popular she is locally. There's been uh, approval ratings for her come through during the by-election campaign, extremely high. So uh, I think that's a bit of a wake-up call for us who thought that Mayo was just going to drift back to the Liberal Party. It isn't. She is entrenched there. That's interesting in that it is uh, one... Uh, pretty solid seat on the cross bench that's going to make it that much harder for anyone to form a majority government. It's a, it's a close election. So uh, that's one thing that we've learned. Another thing I'd like to say about Mayo is to make a qualified defence of the pollsters who are copping a lot of stick at the moment with good reason. But the reason Mayo wasn't a surprise is that the polls correctly told us that you know, we've, those of us who thought that, that this was going to drift back to the Liberals, we got a very immediate reality check with a series of polls saying, no, we're completely wrong about this. It's 60-40. The election has not, the electorate has not responded well at all to having Georgina Downer. 
parachute in from Victoria, you know, to assume her hereditary birthright as the to become the member of Mayo. This is, you know, once it becomes apparent that she's not going to win, that narrative becomes obvious. You know, it, it, it's, it seems obvious now that, that, that voters in Mayo. But without the guidance of polling, if no polls have been conducted, I suspect that, it, that the election would have been a big surprise. You know, at the very least, that it wasn't a lot closer. One other thought I have before I wrap up as well, which is that particularly the shifting polls in Braddon and Longman, that it seems like maybe it was a mistake by the government to uh, hold this, these by-elections with such a long campaign time, a kind of a similar mistake to the one that they made uh, in 2016. And I think I think that is interesting to think about what might have happened in Longman and Braddon if these by-elections had been held three or four weeks ago. Yeah, Labor did seem very genuine in their displeasure that the campaign was going to be as long as it was. So if they were mistaken in the perception that a long campaign was going to favour them, they weren't alone. Uh, I, I think political strategists think too hard about these sorts of things, though. Maybe a long campaign will help you. Maybe it won't. You just have to suck it and see. It depends what happens. And you, you can't really predict it in advance. Yeah. Like It can be a kind of thing where it does have an effect, but that doesn't mean you would have known in advance. Yeah. yeah, you know, it could be that the contingent political events of the last two weeks happened to be bad ones for the government. They had no way of looking into their crystal ball and realising this six, eight weeks ago, whatever it was. Nothing immediately leaps to mind to me in the last two weeks at the national level that really would have been a game changer in the by-elections. If the by-elections, you know, I think particularly Trevor Ruthenberg's uh, medals issue, when did that come out? If the by-election had been earlier, would it have not come out until after the by-election? Or would that have changed the situation and it would have come out earlier? You just, you know, these are the completely imponderable facts that you have to consider. Uh, I think there's uh, a view that a long by-election campaign uh, is, a long election campaign is better off, you would ordinarily think, for the opposition. Because, you know, it gives them more of an opportunity to, you know, be on the stage and uh, more opportunity for a, a, a government that's doing well to slip up. That, that, that's been the, the perception since Bob Hawke didn't do as well as expected in 1984. He had an extraordinarily long by election campaign then and uh, did surprisingly poorly. He got re-elected, but it was expected that would be a massive Labor landslide. That changed the thinking about long campaigns and made people think that they were a bad idea for the government. And what the government wants to do is go short and sharp. Then in 2004, John Howard called quite a long election campaign and it was Mark Latham who stumbled. So yeah, I, I just think that the moral of the story is that uh, I don't think there's much percentage to be gained by trying to be clever about the length of the election campaign one way or the other. You really don't know who it's going to end up favouring. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room podcast. Um, thank you to William for joining me and thanks to all of you for listening. I'll be back in early August with another regular episode. And thanks again to Chris DeBrow for writing the music you hear in this episode. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Uh, William, uh, so how do people find you on Twitter? 
Uh, I am Paul Bludger, simple as that, and uh, my website is polbludger.net. So that is definitely worth checking out, particularly for, uh, I always use it when I want to see which polls have come out recently. It's the definitive source for that kind of thing. So thank you again, William, for joining me. Thank you. And uh, I will see all of you again in about two weeks. Thank you for listening.